0: Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. On a daily basis, we as humans and as sports fans are inundated with communication. Some of that communication is personal, between friends and family, while some of that communication comes in the form of interaction with brands, teams, or even individual athletes. This communication can take multiple forms, and it's often hard to discern what type of communication we're receiving. Our guest today. Dave DeVries is someone who can help us better understand those communications, where they come from, and the intent behind them. Dave is a marketing manager and public relations professional with more than 25 years of experience. He's currently a senior communications manager for Hear Technologies, the world's leading global provider of maps, traffic, and location-based data enabling navigation, location-based services, and mobile advertising. Dave was National Sports Marketing Public Relations Manager at Sprint, supporting the company's NFL, NHL, and venue sponsorships. He's been an adjunct faculty member at Northwestern since 2010, teaching a variety of public relations courses. His paper, Defining the Characteristics of a Lingering Crisis, Lessons from the National Zoo, which examined the emergence of a new crisis communication category defined as a lingering crisis, was published by Public Relations Review. He holds a master's degree in public relations and advertising from DePaul University. Dave brings such an incredible insight around how we as consumers and fans are communicated with and why, and we very much appreciate him sharing that insight. So we hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Dave DeVries. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation because there's so many things that that I want to ask you about. But before we get into a lot of those things around communication and some definitions that I think would be really helpful for, for the audience, can you give us a little bit about your background and all the things that you've done from a career perspective that really lend that insight?
1: Sure. Well, I will tell you that I came to the Northwestern uh, Sports Administration Program all the way back in 2009, and it was very soon after I had been charged with the preparation and execution of a crisis communication plan when my employer, at that time Sprint, was uh, entering into its first Super Bowl halftime show sponsorship at Ford Field, um, and with the Rolling Stones. And if everybody recalls, that was back in 2005, where we were just on the heels of... The so called nipplegate crisis, mm-hmm. wherein Justin Timberlake, as a part of the halftime show, revealed uh, a little too much of Janet Jackson. And so we took on that Super Bowl halftime show sponsorship and just my communication background. In general, I had always found crisis communication uh, interesting and compelling. So what I did was offer myself as a guest speaker to the course instructor at the time and said, Hey, I happen to notice that on the syllabus you're talking about crisis communication and I literally just prepared a plan, I'm happy to come in and talk about it from a real life perspective. Uh, Less than six months later, I started teaching the class (laughs) and I've been there ever since. Um, As a part of those sports activities that I uh, uh, did uh, to to just to bring some credibility to the overall conversation. In addition to those things like the Super Bowl halftime show, uh, there was an enormous amount of I I would, I guess, call sponsor activation communications that I was part of a team handling uh, running the gamut from the building of the Sprint Center in Kansas City to the industry's first made for mobile expressly made for mobile uh, programming on phones uh, that was centered around the world of sports. We had in-studio production quality. We had shows that were hosted by rather well-known luminaries in the industry. And at the time, way back in the you know mid 2000s, that was unheard of because we didn't have the network technology speeds and this giant screens and rectangles that we do now. Uh, so it exposed me to a lot of different ways of working. Working, and it stressed the importance of consistency from a communication standpoint, both watching it originate and then get uh, public, uh, published uh, to see how things could get potentially, I don't know, misaligned along the way. Uh, but I brought that experience to the classroom when I first uh, started taking over uh, and teaching it full-time since 2010. And along the way, I've added lots of adaptations based on real-life experiences that any of us can see in our everyday lives uh, things like the explosion and and you know almost uh, second nature use of all things social media which when I first started teaching was a novelty I guess I would argue whereas now I see it as an integral part of every communication plan and as we'll talk about later the source of uh, if not the exacerbator of a fair amount of crises uh, that we see in the sports industry so um, generally speaking that's what brought me to Northwestern, that's the background that I had, uh, and I've enjoyed, you know, learning the students' desires, uh, opening their eyes to the uh, broad range of communication, because I think a lot of times when they come in, they're expecting a course on all things media relations, and that is one spoke in the wheel, but there are many other constituents or stakeholder groups that we need to be cognizant of, and so they come out of the course learning how to do and say certain things and picking the right channels uh, based on, you know, my advice and my expertise and industry accepted best practices, both when things are good and also when we find ourselves in a crisis.
0: You know, there's really interesting that you bring up the term media relations. And I think what is really useful for me, you know, sort of as a lay person and I think the listeners too, is when you say media relations... What does that encompass? And the reason I ask that is we often talk about marketing, advertising, public relations, media relations, you know, corporate communications, all of these different sort of tracks that you can have with the outreach from a company or a brand or even an individual athlete to a fan or consumer. But it isn't always necessarily clear, one – what those are to the intent three, where they come from. So it'd be really great to have someone that knows those things very well, break those down. Got it.
1: Well, let me start with a a clear definition between, you know for purposes of of this discussion and and elsewhere, how the distinction that I draw between communications and marketing. Uh, I, I think marketing as a general rule at its core is designed to induce a transaction of some sort communication uh, is a part of that you know the messages that you use the visuals that accompany it uh, and so forth there's certainly a communication aspect to it but at the end of the day that is how it is judged uh, as a success the number of click-throughs the number of sales the number the percentage of revenue generated and so forth separate from that is communication Communication is designed to influence attitudes and beliefs and behaviors to an extent so that we're trying to capture mind share and influence those perceptions about who we are, the individual athlete, the team, the brand, whatever. That is a contributor to the overall perhaps marketing mix, but it is not judge the same way. When I look at measuring the success of communication, it's about attitudes. What, uh, what is the current belief of our stakeholders? Are they receptive? Do they believe us? Do they uh, express some loyalty in their words uh, more so than in their purchasing?
0: if that is a, a good enough distinction for you. No, it absolutely is a good enough distinction. I think really important distinction is to draw that sort of dollars and cents distinction in some ways, right? In, yeah. in the sense that marketing advertising is really designed to drive that transaction, to drive you to pay for something, right. or for something. Whereas the communication is an aspect of that, but could also be something that is completely separate and apart from it. You know, you talk about that, but then crisis communication, is that just a more granular piece of that communication strategy?
1: Uh, it is it, I would argue that a crisis communication is employed probably more so than ever in in, in part, or maybe even in whole, by the advent of social media. Because as I teach the course and we examine all things crisis for five weeks out of the 10, we look at where things originated as crises and looking at the root cause of what went wrong from an operational standpoint, but then what it is we need to do and say, and using what channel to keep the stakeholders we have on board because whereas before, when things are good, you're potentially keeping, I don't know, tending the garden to the group of stakeholders you already have on base and perhaps attracting some new ones along the way. Whereas in a crisis, when you're communicating, you're trying to make sure that you don't lose the support of the existing stakeholders already on board. We're not trying to win any new uh, new fans when we're in a crisis. We're just trying to keep everybody on our page, on our side, so that things don't get uh, uh, demonstrably worse by us being tone deaf and communicating not only the wrong message, but also inconsistent messaging. Um, and the, the, the point that I make about consistent messaging as it relates to just this course and the discipline of, of communication overall is, the degree of consistency in your messaging is a central tenet to your success. Because generally speaking, if we walk ourselves through all the different ways in which a potential stakeholder, or sorry, an existing stakeholder could be potentially exposed to messages originating from that organization, there's at least three or four on any given day. They might receive a direct email from us. They might also be following us on our own owned social media accounts. They might also be reading recaps of this or hearing about them via news sources. They might also go to our website. So that's four different places in which uh, the, the messaging that we've prepared and want to ensure is being delivered is consistent because the minute we have a discrepancy, we've exacerbated the crisis because well, over here you told me X, but over there you told me something different. Why is that? Why was that? And then you've you know created yet another spinning plate on the stick that you have to address.
0: I think that's probably good advice in life in general. I would agree. The degree of of consistency, you know, across those messages is going to, if you keep that consistency, is probably going to help you with a lot of things in life. But I think what you mentioned about the course that you teach today, half of Mm it is around this crisis communication, the other half is is other pieces. Has that always been the mix? Or is this this sort of a new phenomenon that has kind of advanced or grown as we've gotten more into, like you mentioned, the social media age. When I was just getting out of graduate school, social media was just becoming a thing. And the funny part with that was... People are coming out of graduate school and saying, hey, I have a master's degree and I'm young enough that I know a lot about this and getting jobs. Yeah. Because, like you said, it was kind of a novelty. But has that mix changed over the years? I think the mix has changed to an extent that we
1: pay attention to as a red thread throughout the duration of the course, the judicious and appropriate use of social media. Uh, and I think in sports in particular, there is the phenomena of in-house reporters that work on behalf of a particular team. And sometimes they're leaving traditional journalistic careers behind. And they're coming over, you know, for a long time, the joke in this industry was if you were a reporter and you came to a PR job, you went over to the dark side. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if it has that same sort of stigma when they're coming out of a journalistic uh, profession and going into uh, work directly on behalf of a team, who knows. But that's another way in which the uh, direct line of engagement between a team, brand, league, whatever, uh, is Completely circumventing traditional journalistic channels. I don't need, for instance, if I work on behalf of uh, a a professional team in the NFL, I don't necessarily need at the end of the day anymore to rely on positive media coverage in the pages of ESPN, the Wall Street Journal, well, not the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, ESPN or the Chicago Tribune or whatever Mm -hmm. uh, to engage my fan base. I can go directly to them uh, via social media or my own team website. Or even email or what have you. But with social media, the precarious challenge is that everybody has an opinion and then everybody starts commenting on everybody else's opinion. And then the next thing you know, you've got this nasty swirl that all you were trying to do was raise awareness about a particular issue. And then, uh, all off to the side, there's all sorts of side arguments uh, that you, you know, and sometimes I have to talk to students about staying above that fray. Uh, In a way, I I sometimes draw the analogy to uh, social media sometimes being the written internet-based equivalent of sports talk radio where everybody just talks and everybody's got an opinion and they're all worth a quarter because everybody's got one. Uh, And figuring out where to judiciously use social media has been a newer incorporation to the course, I would say, within the last, I don't know, eight years or so, whereas I think the industry has settled on the best practices for its use. Sometimes we see some folks coloring outside the lines. or. You know, in in many instances, uh, we can see the maybe less than intelligent use of social media starting what amounts to a giant distraction from the task at hand, which is, I don't know, winning an upcoming game on a Saturday or what it is that we need to do to rebuild after a terrible season and so forth.
0: That's a kind way to say that. I'm trying to be. (laughs) (laughs) You know there's a good descriptor of social media. One of the best that I've ever heard came from, from a writer at The Atlantic, Derek Thompson, and he said social media is like the greatest library you've ever been to, but to get there you have to get through the food fight in the cafeteria first. I like it too. And I like it. it it's yeah. true in the sense that you, social media and, and the, the information that it provides can be – enormously important, but you have to get through the junk first.
1: Yeah, agreed. And and one other point just to make on social media, I do fully appreciate that a lot of organizations are using social media from a marketing perspective. I don't want to be naive that they are not tweeting out, hey, our latest merch has dropped, as the kids would say, and you can click this link and go and buy something. I, I get that there's a, a degree of overlap there. So what we do is try to separate out like, listen, uh, from a transactional standpoint, if that's what they wanna use the social media for, that's fine, but for purposes of this class, you know, we, we look just at the communication and engagement aspect. And one way I, I help students understand this that might be useful to the audience here as well, that if, if we're willing to accept the praise because of higher sales of X, because of a communication initiative, we in turn also have to be willing to accept the blame if it's terrible. And you can't have it both ways. So pick your poison accordingly.
0: It's true. I mean, it's all comers in that sense. I think you mentioned that it is an interesting dichotomy that teams, leagues, individual athletes, so on, don't necessarily need that journalistic relationship to, to have that communication channel anymore, mm-hmm. which can help in, in this sense. But it can also do the flip, right? Yes. Of That direct communication channel with consumers and fans mm-hmm. can oftentimes be the cause of some of this cleanup for lack of a better term that, that has to be done from a communication perspective.
1: It's an odd sort of meta thing to think about that traditional media is sometimes reporting about the shenanigans that were happening on social media. (laughs) That it's, you know, that all of a sudden this becomes newsworthy. And I think it was very very clearly expressed like uh, the use of social media was done really well during the pandemic from a number of teams and individuals. When there was no content related to games or contests or whatever it was all these individual athletes or teams or both producing content to keep you know stoking the flames or tending the garden among their fans with this is my typical workout this is what i'm doing over here not so much like house envy type jazz Mm. but you know stuff that makes them relatable as a person to strengthen that brand connection and i thought it was done really well in a lot of instances uh but now that things have resumed i feel like we're back in the rut of you know the Every other day, uh, the spinning matches.
0: <laughs> it's true. And I think you, know, you mentioned the pandemic and the effect on sports. And I think that it, it kind of reminds me of some some of your work in the sense of you have this, the, the paper around defining the characteristics of a lingering crisis, yeah. which sort of helps to define it. I would say the, the pandemic itself is a lingering crisis. But it, in your field, in your work, in that paper that, that you wrote, it, talk to us about what a lingering crisis is and sort of mm-hmm. its unique characteristics and then how how someone in your position addresses one of those things.
1: Sure. The lingering crisis has to do with a series of rather unrelated at face value events, but don't necessarily allow for a definitive conclusion ever to be reached on behalf of your stakeholders, because this thing happened and then another thing happened and then another thing happened and then another thing happened. And, and you know, the, it's not particularly related to this course, but the case study that I used to look at was the National Zoo in Washington, where animal A, B and C and, C, uh, and X, Y and Z kept dying. At you know the National Zoo in Washington D.C., and uh, it, it it started to even though they were unrelated, but uh, uh, unfortunate coincidences, it allowed by a, a rather disingenuous leader giving. Uh, odd quotes in response to inquiries from outlets like the Washington Post, it allowed stakeholders based on weird answers to start formulating their own narrative about what was happening and why it was happening. And it never necessarily was allowed to come to a conclusion definitively uh, in their heads until something dramatic was happened, uh, sorry, uh, happened. And so in this case, I feel like there's, it's a little less applicable in the realm of sports for an interesting observation that I've made while teaching uh, or, or just to, you know being a fan of sports and uh, both the teacher of the class as well, that I've noticed that a lot of fans in particular of sports have this unique ability to separate out the impact of a crisis and their um, a, a willingness to support teams and individuals who find themselves on the wrong side of history by poor decisions, but where fans are able to distinguish and say, well, that person did something off the field and therefore that doesn't have anything to do with my support of that individual Hmm. as he or she does their job on the field. So I, unlike, you know, a, a, a white collar criminal who potentially uh, blew my life savings, uh, along with many others, through some sort of Ponzi scheme. Uh, that person is very easily vilified and so forth. However, if I look at someone uh, who is charged with domestic violence or charged with uh, uh, driving under the influence or any number of criminal acts, I mean, even shockingly, all the way up to sexual abuse, there is the ability for fans in many instances to still strongly support if not mm, tepidly support, uh, that athlete because the ability to say, yeah, that didn't happen on the field. This doesn't really have anything to do with their de- with their day job, if you will. And that's has
0: been a fascinating thing for me to look at over the years. It really is. I mean, and, and if you think about that, I mean, it's almost like the, the politics argument. You can see that same argument in politics. This political leader's personal life doesn't impact the policy yeah. and, and so on that they make. But <laughs> – it is oftentimes crazy to think about. Those off-the-field transgressions, for lack of a better term, yeah. are certainly much more egregious than, than things that could happen on the field. But I guess that brings up an interesting question that just sort of spurred for me. Sure. If you think about it something like the Colin Kaepernick example. Yeah. That's kind of on the field and off the field,
1: right? Uh, it is. Well, in every sense of the word, it was on the field in a very dramatic way. Uh, And uh, to your question earlier uh, about how the course has evolved, uh, this is a new dimension that we're looking at, um, looking at societal and social issues and the precarious position that teams and athletes sometimes find themselves in based on stakeholder expectations about some of these issues. Um, Let's let's look at something like uh, the availability of restroom facilities for someone who is not identifying as a man and not identifying as a woman. Uh, The expectation among some stakeholders is that you will have reasonable accommodations for those. Uh, who might identify in some way as non-binary or transgender, and if you stake a position that it's not feasible, we're not going to be able to do that and what have you, uh, it has that potential, if you are not in regular touch with stakeholders about this issue, to inadvertently make a lot of people very angry on both sides of the fence. Why would you not have this is maybe one argument, and why would you even waste time thinking about this would be another argument. And so that's just one quick example that I can think of off the top of my head, among many others that I think based on that two-way communication we were speaking of earlier that fans now have. There is a direct pipeline that perhaps didn't exist before Uh, that has forced some positive change, as well as, frankly, some well-intended but Terrible missteps along the way in an attempt to uh, ingratiate the teams, uh, the facilities, the players with varying subgroups of their fans. Uh, and you know, I, I think we're learning as we going. Oh, sorry, we're learning as we go about what is genuine and authentic, and what is perceived to be, you know, a flash in the pan.
0: Do you think that has anything to do with the misalignment of? intention and, and it, it kind of got me down this path of thinking back to my and not to make this the same question over and over again back to the, the Conley Kaepernick example right his intention was to sort of protest police brutality and which were things that were very prevalent in culture and continued to be following that and it, you know in some ways he becomes much more vindicated as we have gone on be, mm-hmm. because of that protest but people missed the point entirely, right, that all they saw was a a for lack of a better term, desecration of an American symbol mm-hmm. in, in that way and didn't get the point of his actual argument. Do you think that that is oftentimes or, or is that a, a an issue that comes up of missing what the point is, the argument mm-hmm. that's trying to be made in a very I don't know. I don't know if it's so much that they missed as much as it gave a catalyst
1: for the division to be clear. For mm-hmm. in, in many instances, there are going to be your supporters of his action, using Ka- Kaepernick as uh, uh, you know to continue that analogy. There were definite supporters and there were definite detractors, and you know without having anything to look at and see or react to. Uh, but for Kaepernick's action in that regard, that then became the catalyst for the broader conversation. So I could argue that those who were uh, uh, opposing it may have missed his intent and missed the broader conversation. Um, I, I could argue, conversely, that those who were supporting weren't necessarily seeing anything uh, that the other side was saying either. They were just saying, well, you're, you're disagreeing because of inherent prejudices that that you have or whatever and so i i, I think that that's a really good one to look at and we do examine it in the class a lot both at that particular moment in time and its immediate aftermath and as you said how it's evolved perceptions have evolved over time uh, because and that's an interesting thing to look at from a crisis communication standpoint too there's this inherent fear about saying the wrong thing and listen, the, no one's ever going to get it right on the first go. Communication, sorry, crisis communication in particular is not a, a, a science like X plus Y equals Z. You're going to have to take some risks and adapt appropriately. If what you're saying and doing wasn't being received well by your stakeholders, you've got to adjust. And I think in this same instance, we can look at over time how we initially reacted to a certain crisis, what it is we did and said, how it is we can adapt. And frankly, the only way to do that well is to not guess and not just blast something out the door in a shotgun fashion. If a communication professional is doing his or her job correctly, they have a really good read on how this is going to play in Peoria, as the saying goes. I'm not guessing on how our particular actions are going to be received by our stakeholders. We have in theory, really good uh, relationships established with key members of all these respective stakeholder groups. And so we can advise, you know, around the management table appropriately that, if we take this uh, stance, if we say these words, here's the reaction that I think we should anticipate. And preparing your spokespeople appropriately for that is a, a central point to success.
0: It, there's so many examples of this currently. And what's really interesting about this is… You're definitely right. You can see it as the, someone that becomes entrenched and doubling down on the original point that they made and not having the ability to shift and adapt and say, hey, we didn't get it right the first time makes it much worse. But I guess the question that leads from there is <laughs> we live in a culture today where most people, a lot of people take the things that they want to fit the narrative that they've already created or, right? or they've created, they do snap judgments. Right. And so that's gotta be a really difficult thing for any organization, any team, and, you know, in any situation like this, whether it's a crisis or not, yeah. from a communication perspective to say, this is what we're trying to put out, but depending on the narrative that someone wants to fit that into, they're going to fit that into that narrative and use it to forward that message, even if yeah. it wasn't the actual intent.
1: Yeah, I, and I, that, that's a very valid point, point. and there's two things that I would give as considerations to chew on. One, you've got to take the long view. Uh, looking at what you did and, and, and accomplished on a given day and how it's being reacted to on a given day is I think useful to an extent, but you need to look at it from a longer perspective to see if it's sticking and to see if it is being received because in our reactionary nature of everyday life and how many times we're, you know, uh, how full our inboxes are, uh, how jammed our social media channels are, et cetera. There's just, at a certain point it becomes white noise. And so we need time to let things percolate, I would argue, um, to determine whether or not our messaging as intended is being received appropriately and successful. So that's the first thing I would say, take a long view. Uh, The second would be decide who matters, decide what matters, because, uh, you know, uh, words are a dime a dozen and everybody has opinions, as I said before. However. Not everybody has an opinion that matters to the organization, to you as a whole. And once you've identified who your bellwethers are, then I think you can establish uh, an appropriate course of action if you're hearing negative feedback from some of those bellwethers rather than, oh, well, somebody said something nasty about us on Twitter. we got to do something right now. I mean – Take a breath, because, you know, there's always gonna be detractors everywhere you go, and nothing's ever necessarily gonna be 100% perfect. You've gotta decide what you're looking for and what you're hoping to achieve. Uh, And again, using some of those bellwethers as, I don't know, milestones along the way to determine at the end of it, and both from a crisis standpoint too, as everyday communications, if your message got through and it achieved the desired result.
0: It's so hard from a communication perspective today in, in so many regards. I think that keeping that in the present is if you look at organizations today, whether that's you know sports organizations, teams, leagues or otherwise, what are really the, the biggest challenges that they face in this communication environment that we have today of one, not again, taking it away from a crisis perspective overall, mm-hmm. just in general, and communicating with a broader audience. I think the biggest
1: challenge is breaking through the clutter with something that is impactful and, and not viewed, you know, especially in a crisis, as opportunistic, to come back to the earlier point we were making. Uh, the 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 Let me use my analogy again about white noise. We're overwhelmed with stuff every day, and Twitter allows a finite amount of characters, and maybe you get some click-throughs and so on and so forth. I, I think that there's a certain point at which you decide, uh, are we trying to... Attract new, or are we trying to maintain what we have uh, and and act appropriately to break through that clutter? Because I think it's a it's a natural expectation that sports teams, for instance, will be publishing a lot of content because uh, and in a lot of different channels because. You know, there might be some people who prefer it one way and some people who prefer it in all ways because they're just diehards. I I think that's fine. But we've got to look for a combination of push and pull uh, to break through that clutter um, augmented by and and bringing traditional media back into the conversation here. uh, uh, Validation of the uh, points that we were trying to make in the overall campaign or, you know, whatever that particular issue was at hand, because I still think traditional media has a very important role to play. Uh, it, it still very much sets the agenda, at, uh, in my view, but it also validates because it's, you know, in theory, impartial. And there is no one in these roles who has to believe what it is that's being said to them. And they can look for. Uh, a contrarian points of view, uh, but at the end of the day, if they are uh, you know helping us validate what it is we are saying and doing on our own channels, all the better. Uh, I also don't want to ignore all of the internal stakeholders that an organization has With, because we spent a fair amount of time talking about it from media and fair. that's probably the most visible uh, stakeholder that any team or individual would have. However, you know, when, as I was saying earlier, when folks are coming into this course, they're realizing that holy cow, we've got way more internal stakeholders than we do external the external are more visible and louder however i need to also ensure that i am keeping uh, engaged with and telling my employees what they need to know my season ticket holders my sponsors uh my if i work for a school like northwestern my staff and faculty my student my alumni so there's uh, all these groups who are already uh, 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 a little more engaged with what it is we are doing. Like take the you know case of an employee, I'm getting a paycheck from them. So I work here. I need to know what it is that's being said and done before we go externally. Uh, and so keeping uh, uh, that perspective in mind, we want to... To to come back to your question about how do we ensure that we stay on message and so forth, it's delivering that consistency within and outside our organization and, you know, keeping it uh, at the forefront but figuring out where to respond uh, as appropriate.
0: The internal part's really important and I think outside the world of sports, there's a really interesting example of that from recently if you just look at Disney Mm -hmm. and and Disney with the things that happened in Florida and Mm – Their internal employees, especially those folks from Pixar, were very displeased about the response or about the lack of response from Mm -hmm. the top on down inside of that. And the interesting part about that is... It caused much more consternation than externally because of that internal you know, response, because those, those internal stakeholders were not informed of what the approach or messaging was going to be and have a chance to have a say in that. So you're right in the sense that it, it is enormously important, and that's a perfect example of seeing that.
1: Yeah, I, and I think what was interesting there, and I, and I think you can look in other organizations too, but that's probably the most visible example of late. The vocal employees made their case outside the four walls about why they felt this was the wrong decision, w- that more should have been done, and so forth. So they kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to say spoke out of turn, but unexpectedly. For the happiest place on earth to have some of those vocal critics be inside the temple and then come outside and criticize their own employers was really eye opening to a lot of people who, uh, you know, depending on their respective points of view, either supported it or, uh, found it a bit disloyal. Uh, that uh, some internal discussions were, uh, you know, spoken outside the house.
0: But back to what you were talking about from some of those teachings. If you appropriately address those stakeholders and ensure that everybody has the the correct seat at the table you can avoid situations like this. Oh, yeah. Form those internal stakeholders first and be able to then have a dialogue about how you then go externally to
1: it. Uh, right. And and let's not be naive that some things that you're going to do and say internally won't make their way outside your four walls. Uh, that's just the nature of the internet and things are going to get leaked. Uh, however, what it is I, I am uh, uh, really stressing as a part of this, course, and just frankly, anybody who's in this profession from a communication standpoint, in, in, in general, you have to speak to your own house first. It is a, an egregious error to have an employee on the commute, on the way into work, or you know, read about it in a third-party news source about a decision that has been made uh, at a company-wide level that they didn't get told first. Now I'm saying that that could be even 30 minutes before an official press release crosses the wire or something of that nature. I guarantee your employees are not going to fault you for that. I guarantee that they will look at the timestamp and say, even though I didn't read this, they there was an effort made to make sure that I knew what our position was the news of the day before it went to the external world. And that will be appreciated. Uh, and, and frankly, that's a bit, uh, Communication one on one, but it's oftentimes overlooked to the point that I was making earlier. We've spent a lot of time talking about the shiny ball of media because that's the most uh, impactful. It has the broader reach, and and frankly, is reaching potentially millions upon millions more people. That said, we don't know who your fans are on social media by name. We don't know where they live. We don't know anything about them other than their avatar and their name and their you know dime a dozen opinion. I do, however, know the names and addresses of every single one of my employees, every single one of my season ticket holders, and so on. And so they merit a degree of preferential communication before we go outside.
0: It there's so many facets of this. You and I could sit and talk about this. We have a million questions in there, but I'll get you out of here on this one and just spin it back in a positive way because we've talked a lot about crisis communication sometimes in this facet of, of your work. There is some level of like, okay, we're responding to a crisis. There's a negative connotation in some senses to that. But I think on the other side, there's some really interesting things from the positive. And I think I the, the, you know, the last question I would want to ask you is, on a day-to-day basis, what's the most positive and rewarding thing to do this type of work from a communications perspective and, and being able to get that message out?
1: Seeing it repeated is what I guess I would say is a validation for me that not only did I craft a message that was, first of all, understandable, but it was also internalized as I was using that word I said before, it, it percolated. And it then is being repeated without me standing behind somebody with a cattle prod saying, you've got to say this, you've got to do this. To see it embraced uh, and potentially repeated uh, in other forums that I'm not in charge of validates that I, I my instincts were right, about using these, uh, this approach, these words, and this channel. And then when I see it uh, uh, in other instances, maybe not necessarily immediately, but even down the line, satisfying to me and hopefully satisfying to others that we took you know, probably thousands of words at the start and distilled it down into something that was memorable, repeatable. And we got those uh, who we were intending to reach uh, to embrace it and repeat it uh,
0: unaided. That's That's great. That is really good. I can imagine that's extremely rewarding. But but thank you so much for the time today. It's one of those things that impacts us all. But we don't see it on the surface. So it's really cool to get the insight and dig down into understand how these things are are done and crafted and understood and and really disseminated to to everyone.
1: Yeah, I was happy to do it. And uh, I uh, am getting ready to teach the the course uh, four more times in the year ahead. So I uh, look forward to introducing all sorts of new examples, uh, including some that we've even talked about today that maybe I should add that to the course. So thanks a lot for the time.
0: Thank you, Daniel.